0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. As was mentioned earlier, we're taking just a brief break from our studies in the gospel according to Luke to look at the three primary areas of our church's ministry and talk about what it means for us as members of this church to pursue these three areas of ministry together. And we're going to be looking at worship, looking at teaching, and looking at outreach and sharing, worshiping Jesus, teaching Jesus, sharing Jesus. And this morning, as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be talking about worshiping together, the importance of it. I'm going to begin ver- reading in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Many years ago, I came across an article online that uh, listed some of the common Christian code phrases we use, those little phrases in Christianese that we use, that we know what they mean, but the world doesn't know what it means. Actually, we actually have to learn what they really mean as opposed to what they sound like they mean. For instance, in this list, in a situation where you're asked to serve in the church and you answer, I'll pray about that. What you really mean, there ain't no way that's happening. (laughs) If someone comes up to you and says, I don't mean to judge, but Brace yourself, you're about to get judged. Someone says, "I'm waiting for the Lord to open doors for me." What that really means, probably, is that you still live in your parents' basement." If you live down south and someone in the church says to you, "Well, bless His heart," I've heard many interpretations of this, but this guy said that the real interpretation of that is, he's not too bright. If someone is at a meal and they say, Oh, I I can't eat because I'm fasting today, what they really mean is, My spiritual life is so much better than yours. You need to keep up. I want to add one more to that list. We missed you last Sunday. That sounds like a really affectionate phrase, doesn't it? You know, you want to hear that. I really missed you last Sunday. It's really nice to be missed, isn't it? No, but you know what they're really saying. Where were you anyway? Now, as much as we might dread hearing that question when we miss church, isn't it worse if you miss church for three or four Sundays and nobody says to you, we missed you while you were away? That would be definitely worse. I was talking to Ron last week, and he was telling me about a pastor who required his members, when they go away on vacation, to go to church. And he wants to make sure they go to church when they're away on vacation. And by doing that, how he knows that they've done that is that they are to bring back with them a bulletin from that church to prove that they actually visited another church while they were on vacation. Well, not only that, he says this pastor also requires them to have it signed by one of the church leaders to make sure that they really attended worship while they were away. That's how much he cares that his people be with God's people in worship. Now, we're not going to do that. I, I, we're not going to require that here. But it is important that we regularly be in worship. The scriptures are very clear about that. It is important, if you're born again Christian, to be regularly in worship. And that's what this passage is telling us. Hebrews 10.25 says we are not to be neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, you can make the point, and Christians often do, well, that's not only talking about worship. There's many different ways in which as a church family that we meet together. But I would challenge you that this passage specifically in context is primarily focused on gathering together for worship. Yes, it could apply to Bible studies or any, many other different ways in which we gather but it primarily is referring to worship. I know that because in verse 22, it says, let us draw near, and it's talking about drawing near to God. And in scripture, when you see any reference to drawing near to God, it's talking about worship. So gathering together is primarily here referring to gathering together to worship. To enter into the presence of God together is crucial to the life of any disciple of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, it describes the life of the early church. In verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Most commentators agree that the breaking of bread that's referred to there is the Lord's Supper. And so what you have is the early church committed to gathering together to sit under the teaching of the apostles as they taught the word of God, to pray together, and to observe the sacraments, particularly to observe the Lord's Supper together. The Westminster Shorter Catechism lists three means of grace, three avenues by which God pours out grace from heaven into your heart, into your life. And those three means of grace are the word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. Worship. It's essential to being strong in the faith. It's essential to your life as a Christian if indeed you are a Christian. Worship means sharing together in the grace of God as we gather in His presence. As we draw near to Him. You know, our church and many, many other churches around the world faced a challenge in 2020 that if you had you couldn't have told me three months before it hit the pandemic hit you could have not asked me to imagine what it was like to be at church together to be part of a church during a pandemic I could not have imagined a circumstance where we would not actually have any gatherings any worship services from the middle of March until June where Much of our church would not be gathering together, even once we started to have services, much of our church would still not be able to gather together with us and worship. Where we would go for so long, so many months, without observing the Lord's Supper together. I couldn't have imagined a circumstance that would have made that happen, short some totalitarian ruler coming and shutting down the church forcibly. I couldn't imagine that, but that's what we went through. And I hope that one of the things that you've taken away, I'm sure you've learned a lot of things through the trials of the last 18 months, but I hope that one of the things that you've taken away is how important it is to be able to gather together, to worship together as a church. We should never take it for granted. There are many places in the world where they can't because of some totalitarian persecuting rule. Don't ever take it for granted. Well, let's dig into that. According to this passage, why is corporate worship so essential? And we'll begin by saying, what is the basis of our worship? Why are we here? What's the basis of it? Verse 19 starts with the word therefore. When you see the word therefore in Scripture, what are you supposed to do? Look and see what it's there for. That's exactly what it's, it's always a transition point. And every New Testament epistle, almost every New Testament epistle, has a turning point where it turns from, especially in Paul's letters, where he turns from teaching the doctrines of the faith, the essential things that we must believe. And he transitions, he says, in light of all of this truth about what we must believe, about who God is, about who Jesus is, about what he's done to save us, in light of this, how then should you live? Therefore, how should you live? And then he teaches on practical Christian living. And that's what happens here in the book of Hebrews. The first nine and a half chapters are some of the most difficult, but also some of the most important theology in all of the Bible. A lot of people are intimidated by the book of Hebrews, and it is not an easy book to interpret. But boy, is it rich, deep and rich. And what the book of Hebrews does is it shows us how the Old Testament, which seems so foreign to us in the ways of worship and the ways that the people of God were structured and what discipleship looked like for them, seems so different. But the book of Hebrews shows us how all of that was preparatory for the coming of Christ, all of that was shadows and symbols of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And so the book of Hebrews shows us that, yes, there is an Old Testament, a New Testament, an Old Covenant, a New Covenant, but really there's one covenant of grace, and it's all about Jesus. Even the earliest books of the Old Testament point us to Jesus. All of Scripture fits together in him. Now, remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Christians in the first century that were from a Jewish background, that had been scattered around the Roman Empire. And the concern of the writer of the book of Hebrews is that as they began to be persecuted for their faith in Christ, as their Jewish family, as their Jewish neighbors, as their Jewish friends started to reject them or treat them badly because of their commitment to Jesus Christ, or just the culture became so, the cost of discipleship, of living in the culture became so difficult. The fear was that they would begin to go back to the familiar. Go back to the, not the Old Testament Judaism, but the first century Judaism. The, one, the, the type of Judaism that rejected Christ as Messiah. To go back to the forms and the rituals without Christ. They were tempted to do that because their life got so hard as a disciple. There was a cost to their discipleship. And so the whole purpose of the writer of the book of Hebrews is to show that Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of that. Jesus is the fulfillment. And so chapters 3 and 4, the writer shows us that Jesus is the greater Moses who leads his people out of greater slavery, a slavery to sin and death, into a greater kingdom, the eternal universal kingdom of Christ. Chapters 5 through 7 teach about how Jesus is the greater high priest, the one who is from the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron, the one that the order of Aaron, the priesthood in the order of Aaron pointed to, the greater one, the divine priesthood of Melchizedek. In chapter 8, the writer shows us that Jesus came as the mediator of a greater covenant, the new covenant, which fulfilled and surpassed the old covenant under Moses because the new covenant brought complete forgiveness of sin and eternal life to God's people and then chapter 9 and the first half of chapter 10 tells us why Jesus redemption Jesus rest Jesus priesthood Jesus covenant why these things were infinitely superior to those of the old testament it's because the sacrifice that he offered the blood that he brought before, God the Father was his own blood. And that blood was uniquely sufficient to pay for the sins of God's people. Only his life could ransom us from our sins. So that's the theology that builds up to this verse 19 where it says, Therefore, therefore, in light of all of this glorious truth, how then should we live? And immediately he goes to the issue of worship. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Why do we have confidence to enter the holy places? Because of the blood that was shed on our behalf. Because of Christ. The holy places, of course, is a reference to that central sanctuary in the tabernacle and later in the temple. The holy place and the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the throne of God, the very presence of God. The mercy seat. This was a picture of separation. Yes, a picture of the hope of access to the presence of God. But the sanctuary in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple was a picture of separation. But we, because of Christ, are welcomed into the holy places. We have a double assurance that the writer refers to. First, he says, we enter by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Interestingly, the word new there, in the original Greek, it was a a word that was referred to something that's been freshly butchered, freshly slaughtered. If you slaughter a pig, you slaughter a cow, or more appropriately, you, you, you slaughter a lamb or a goat. Freshly slaughtered, it's new, newly sacrificed. It is what the old sacrifices pointed to. I was thinking this week about the, um, the flight to the moon, which was astounding, astounding scientific achievement in the 1960s. And I was thinking about the engineers who produced all the drawings that were used to build the command module, the lunar module, uh, you know, the service module. They, they, they used had these intricate drawings with all the electrical, all the computer, all everything in these drawings. But the drawings themselves could not get a man to the moon. It took a rocket, an actual space rocket, an actual command module. and act- The things that these drawings pointed to, the things that these drawings portrayed, that's what these Old Testament sacrifices represented was the means by which we are reconciled to God. But Christ is what they, is the fulfillment of these things. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Now the reference to the curtain there, again, if you know what the sanctuary at the middle of the tabernacle and temple looked like, there was a huge thick curtain that separated the holy place where the priests could operate with the showbread and the altar of incense but there was a huge thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant the throne of god the representation of the presence of god was located only once per year could only the high priest not any priest but only the high priest could only once a year go behind that curtain go through the curtain into the holiest of holies so that he could put the blood of the blood of the passover the day of atonement he could put the blood on the mercy seat to present that a sacrifice has been made for the sins of the people that's the whole imagery that he's referring to here christ has gone through the curtain into the very presence of god he is the greater high priest who came with the greater sacrifice of his own blood and what that curtain showed is that before christ the way into the presence of god was not yet open those sacrifices pointed to a coming way for the presence of God to be opened up to the, God, to the people of God, but it had not yet been opened. But there's this beautiful moment in the most horrific moments of history when the Son of God is crucified on the cross, when he's dying, crushed under the burden of the guilt of our sins on the cross. As he died, he cried out, it is finished, which meant that the sacrifice was complete. The blood had paid for the sins of God's people. It is finished, he said. And it says in Matthew 27, in that moment, the curtain in the temple ripped from the top to the bottom so that the Ark of the Covenant was exposed. The presence of God was exposed to the people of God. It's intentional that it says from the top to the bottom. That detail is included so that we know it was a divine act. The way into the presence of God was opened we are able to enter by the blood of Jesus. He calls it a living way. You can't translate that a way of way. Uh, it's not a way to life. You can't translate it. It's a it's a um, life giving way. Those would be bad interpretations. The right way to interpret it is the way is living. In other words, Jesus is alive. Not only has he offered the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice that brings you into the presence of God, but he is a risen savior. He is alive, he is a living way. Because he ever lives to intercede for us, he is our greater high priest who lives and will always live, and so the way is always open. In John 14:6, you know this verse, it's so familiar, but notice how it ties in. It says Jesus said, "I am the way, I am the truth, And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the living way. And then, of course, he goes on to say, since we have a great high priest. You see, having a great high priest to bring us into the very presence of God is the basis of our confidence in approaching God. We know that from back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Where it says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. He is able to save to the uttermost, chapter 7 says. Because he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the basis of our confidence. The sacrifice that was made and the high priest who offered it. Jesus Christ offering his own blood as the ultimate final sacrifice for our sins gives us great confidence. Go running into the presence of God because there is no hindrance for those who come by faith. Did you realize that confidence in pro- approaching the creator, the one true God, that confidence in approaching God is unique to Christianity? Do you know of another religion where they have such confidence how could you have such confidence when it's your religion is based on rules your religion is based on rituals your religion is based on works how could you ever have confidence in approaching a holy god but because of the work of christ you run into the presence of god knowing he fully accepts you And So verse 22 says, because Christ has given the final sacrifice, because Christ is the greater high priest, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And there you have that definition of the meaning of the sign of the covenant, that it means this cleansing, this divine cleansing that we must have in order to be clean before a holy God. And that's what baptism represents. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are are the gospel visualized. That's what they are. You have the word and you have the sacrament. Two means of grace that bring spiritual strength to us. So, coming to worship should be like coming home. I mean, coming to the ideal home. Not like many of our homes, but coming home to the ideal home. Where you know that you don't have to knock at the front door. You don't have to do anything to get in. You just come striding right in through the front door, and you walk right up to your loving mother and father, hopefully, and they embrace you warmly because you know that you're loved and unconditionally accepted. That's the approach that we have in worship. Don't ever take it lightly. Christ paid an incredible cost to give it to you. Well, What's the effect of that gospel-based kind of worship? What's the effect? There's two effects. Worshiping together in light of what Christ has done for us strengthens our hope and our faith. And there's an intimate connection between hope and faith. Your faith produces hope. And those are two of the most important things in your life, your faith and your hope, and worship will strengthen it. In verse 23, it says, Since we have the confidence to enter God's presence by the blood of Jesus, and since we have this great high priest... Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That word confession in the original language comes from the two words being put together that would mean to say together. To confess something is to say together something. To say together what you believe in. The word that we say together. The confession of our faith. You did it. Several minutes ago, when you confessed the Apostles' Creed, you said together the essentials of the faith that we share together. It's what Jude, in his letter, called the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's been handed down from generation to generation. It binds us together, what we confess together. Most scholars think that the very first confession of faith is in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he goes on to give the creed. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. There you have the core truths that have just been elaborated upon it, but the details have been filled in in every successive creed and confession ever since then. But those are the core truths that we hold together. And it binds us together, and it strengthens our faith when we say these things together. The Apostles' Creed led to the Nicene Creed, which led to the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Belgic Confession after the Reformation, the Canons of Dort, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith. All of these are basic summaries of the essentials that bind us together to varying degrees among true believers in Jesus Christ, true disciples. And saying them together strengthens our faith. You know, that's why I've always encourage congregations to say amen during a sermon. I have failed miserably as a Presbyterian pastor to get people to do it. <laughs> and I truly am thankful for those who have the gift of saying amen who show up in spite of the rest of us being so inhibited, inhibited because that's the purpose of it. Preacher, I agree with what you're saying. I say together with you what you just said. It's also the basis of our, the importance of our singing together. Isn't that what singing is? It's making a confession of faith together. Saying together the same things. It strengthens your faith. It strengthens your hope. What it does is it adds the element of music. And you know me, I love music. I think music is a gift from God. Music is given to us to accompany our confession of faith together, accompany that with music to bring our emotions into it in a powerful way. Singing together is confessing your faith together in such a way that you will strengthen your faith and your hope. Andrew Wilson, in an article he wrote just a couple weeks ago, said, if multiple people talk at once, the meaning of each individual is lost. Whereas if multiple people sing at once, and especially when they sing in harmony, the meaning of each individual line is heightened and strengthened by being united with others. It's a glorious picture of what the church is intended to be. I was reminded of this. I'm reminded of this every year. Uh, standing in the midst uh, yesterday, 105,000 people singing Sweet Caroline. <laughs> right after they just got done singing, uh, what, what's the other one? The uh, Living on a Prayer. <laughs> and of course, in a much more solemn way, at the end, they come together and they sing the alma mater of Penn State. And I think... They're doing the same thing we're doing here, but they're doing it over such trivial truths. Such temporal... (laughs) Sweet Caroline, you know what they're affirming there. But there's power. There's power. In confessing together, especially to the tune of sweet music. He goes on to say, do it without wavering. Do it without wavering. And the idea is, the actual word means to be unbent. And as I was... Digging into the word study, what that word meant, the image that came to my mind was that famous picture from World War II on the top of the hill at Iwo Jima. We had the six soldiers pushing the standard up, the flag up. That's always been an inspiring military picture for our armies and for our nation, a patriotic picture. And really, that's, that's what he's saying here is for the church. We are the kingdom of God. The banner over us is the love of Christ. And we hold high the banner. We do it together as we hold up, as we confess our faith together, as we worship together. We're holding that banner high. It's it's an inspiring image of what it means to do this together, not as individuals. And it's also true across, across generations. In chapter 11, he's going to give a long list of people who lived by faith in the Old Testament. Before the coming of Christ. And yet they lived by faith in the coming Christ. They lived in the atonement to come. That was their faith was in the atonement to come. And you get to the end of this long list of people who lived by faith in the coming Christ. And then he begins chapter 12 by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also run with endurance the race. You hear what he's saying? Together we're lifting this banner, together with not just the people that are here in the room, not just with the people who are worshiping Christ genuinely in other churches around the country and around the world, but with every generation of disciple of Christ that has ever confessed the same things and worshiped the same God, we stand together with them. And it enables us, it strengthens our faith, which strengthens our hope, which enables us to endure. Because the bottom line, as it says, is He who promised is faithful. Isn't that the challenge to your faith day in and day out? Is God faithful to His promises? And when we gather together to worship based on the work of Christ, we are reminded that He who promised is faithful. It is essential to your spiritual growth. And then He mentions the day. We are to gather together in God's presence, worshiping together, confessing together, all the more as we see the day drawing near. That day is referring to as the second coming of Christ. It is coming. The second of Christ will happen historically. It may happen soon. And it will be our full and final deliverance. The day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. And you know what faith is? What hope is? Hope is faith looking forward. Hope is faith looking forward. And as your faith gets stronger, your vision of what's coming gets stronger as well. And your confidence in what's coming because he who is faithful who has promised it. And that brings us to the second major impact of worshiping in Christ regularly together, which is that it increases our love for one another and for God. You notice I've intentionally tied those three words together, faith, hope, and love. Because that's what it promises. Those are the three most essential aspects of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. And they are all strengthened when we gather together to worship based on the work of Christ. In verses 24 and 25, it says, Because we have this confidence in Christ to approach God, this holy God, to, to run with confidence into his presence. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Now, it is just a, a, a truth, a truism, of our existence as human beings that when we share experiences together, it binds us together. And you, I've talked to people who've survived uh, plane crashes and having sur- had that traumatic experience and shared that together, binds them in a really powerful way. I was talking to somebody after the first service who just got back from a missions trip, a three-week missions trip overseas. And I've never seen Christians bind more quickly and more powerfully than when they do a missions trip together. Shared experience will bind you together. And it's just trivial things, like watching a movie together will bind you. Going to a concert or sharing in a, a victory at a sporting event will, or losing in a sporting event even will bind you together. That's how I explain the Chicago Cubs. But they, you know when you, either winning or losing either positive or negative experience these experiences will bind you together. Well there is no more intense and no more meaningful experience than striding confidently into the presence of a holy God to worship him. Sharing in the intensity of worship will bind you together with other brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that you could not even imagine. It's powerful. That's why it's so important. Let us consider one another. That means really study one another, know one another. It's good to talk about sports and the weather when you're at church, but let that be a bridge to more important topics so that you can really know one another so that you can build one another up. So you can be honest and open and vulnerable and risk being hurt by one another. Because in that, you bond more deeply in the context of your worship and fellowship together. Stir up one another, he says. And that word, you do have to dig into that word. Do a little bit of word study on that one too because it's actually a very strong word. It means to incite or provoke. To stir up one another is not to pat one another on the back so much as it's to confront one another at times, to hold one another accountable. What that says is that our fellowship and worship and our fellowship together is not always a positive, pleasant experience. Sometimes it's painful because we need to be confronted. We need to be held accountable. Stir one another up. The fruit of Gospel-centered worship, that's what we're talking about, worship that's based upon the finished work of Christ at the cross, worship that is based upon the gospel produces love and good works. Love produces good works. The gospel strengthens your faith. Your faith strengthens your hope. Your hope strengthens your love for one another. And out of that love, it produces good works. Do you see how important worship is to your life? What happens when you don't worship? I know that all of us to one degree or another during the COVID era have experienced what happens when you don't worship together to some degree. When you don't worship together, you get self-centered. You get selfish. You get worldly, materialistic. You get very prideful and you get isolationist. It's just, you start to lose those benefits of the strengthening of your hope, the strengthening of your faith, which strengthens your hope, which strengthens your love. You lose the benefit. So I would say, please don't hesitate to say to one another, we missed you last Sunday when you don't see each other. Just lose the judgmentalism. But genuinely say, I need to be worshiping with you. I need you in my life worshiping together. This is what it means to be a member of Christ's church. Faith, hope, and love are the most important fruits of the Spirit according to Scripture. Faith, hope, and love. And the root of those fruits of the Spirit lies in your worship of God together as God's people. Let's pray. Father, I would first ask you to forgive us for the many ways in which we have taken the privilege of standing in your presence together for granted. We have had that freedom. Really, in many ways, unlike any other people, any other nation on the face of the planet in the history of mankind, we have had the freedom. And because of that, Lord, we treat it lightly. We take it for granted. Lord, please forgive us. But Lord, I do pray that to whatever degree we've been limited in our worship with our brothers and sisters over the past year and a half, I pray, Lord, that we would never take it for granted again. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to be digging deeper and deeper into what it means that Christ is not only the blood sacrifice that tore the curtain that brought us into your presence, but he is the high priest who ever lives to intercede for us and save us to the uttermost. Lord, we thank you for the book of Hebrews and how it teaches us so much about what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.